want to be insular. I just want to work with Christians. Well, that might be true. I like it too. I like to fellowship with everyone. Uh, but if we're there to do a job, we're there to do a job. And uh, uh, I would say I would rather work with non-believers in that capacity so I can witness to them and share with them, be a good example to them. So we adorn the doctrine of God, right? That's the point. Adorn the doctrine of God by our good behavior. The third thing is it says, speak evil of no one. Speak evil of no one, but be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. I believe this has to do with our neighbors. So we have our government, our employer, and our neighbor. Speak evil of no one. Gossip is a big, terrible, nasty thing that happens. It could tear down a church. It could tear down a family. It can tear down lots of things. Speak evil of no one. Now, we shouldn't say it to their face, or we shouldn't say it behind their back. Some people say, well, I, you know, I let them have it. It was the truth. Well, it might have been the truth, but you just tear, tore that guy up, even if it was the truth. It says that we're to speak evil of no one. We're to be peaceable. Uh, the word there is gentle. We're to be gentle, peaceable and gentle. Uh, the idea there has to do with patience. It has to do with patience. Um, how do you identify with that person that you're dealing with? How do you see yourself? Do I consider them? Do I feel their need when I'm talking to them? First of all, I shouldn't say anything evil about them. But secondly, I need to be peaceful and gentle toward them. That's a difficult thing to have. That takes a lot of courage and a lot of faith to really deal with somebody that you disagree with, but to do it in a gentle and peaceable way. You know how many arguments could be avoided? If we just put those things in practice, if we just did it. I know today we're not talking about, you know, we had a great study on Sunday with John Holler. Wonderful, wonderful things we need to remember what's going on in the world. But you know what? This is as important as well. It may not thrill you. People come with the prophecy up that it is. We can talk about it afterwards. And I like it and we need to do it. But this is, this is basic Christian doctrine that if we don't get this right, what business do we have with worrying about what Syria, what's going on in Syria and Egypt and all that, if we can even get this right? And this is where the Lord wants us to have. Be a Christian in church. I know that's hard to do. Hello? Be a Christian in church. Be a Christian at home. That's tough, isn't it? Because I'm tired and sometimes I'm grumpy and hungry. They usually go together. And, um, and be a Christian in the world. Oh, boy. But we learn to be Christians. Listen to this. We learn to be Christians in church. We learn to be Christians in church. How? We learn to be Christians in church because this is where we learn how to walk with the Lord, how to read his word, how to understand it. We begin to, things, begin to speak the things of Christ here. If you can't do it here, you won't do it out there. I guarantee you. If you can't speak of Christ here, where it's safe, where we can understand, where we can relate, where we can, we have no shame. If we can't do it here, how can you do it out there where they would disagree with you, call you names, shun you, uh, do different things to you? And so Christianity has to be lived out in all three places, but you begin to do it here. Then you go home, and you do it there. Then you go to the world, and you do it there. 
But this is where we learn how to be Christians. How to be, you have to be trained in those things. Yes, we could be saved. Yes, we can have the Spirit of God. But this is the environment in where we're training. This is, what, this is what training is. How to be a Christian here. How do you love? We're called to love one another, right? Well, if you don't even love the person next to you or behind you or in front of you, what makes you say you're going to love somebody out, out of this place? Okay? But this is where you learn how to love one another. If you can't love Christians, how are you going to love those who don't love you? Like the world. At least here they love you back. I hope. Right? At least here they can pray for you, encourage you. You learn to be a Christian in a fellowship, in a church. Then you take it to the home and you apply it there. Then you take it to your workplace and you apply it there. If we can't get that right, forget me trying to explain to you Jeremiah 29 or Ezekiel 34, the mountains of Israel, or Revelation 19. If we can't even get that part right, how more are you gonna? How much less are you gonna understand uh, the things of the end times, which are important? I'm not denying it. We spend a lot of time on it, but this is also we have to spend a lot of time on it because how to live in the last days. I believe this is what Titus is speaking of. Remember, Titus has this verse right smack in the middle, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Right smack in the middle of the book. There's this glorious appearing of Jesus. That's his coming for us. And so it's not to say, well, this is, this is something different. Uh, you know, eschatology in the end times, that's something different than this here. The book of Titus puts it all together. That is, if you're looking for the blessed hope, you're going to live like this. Amen? If you're looking for the blessed hope, then your life will mirror Christ-likeness. And if you can't be Christ-like, then why are you looking for the blessed hope? You first need to be Christ-like. But in looking at the blessed hope, it'll encourage you to be Christ-like. It, it kind of works both ways. You're looking and you're changing. You want to be Christ-like because the grace of God is training us to do that, to deny ungodliness and to live righteously, soberly, and godly. That's what the grace of God is there for. Now, we got off on that tangent. Let's go back to this. With all humility and meekness to all men. That's so important. I guarantee you today, you take that, those two verses, very simple verses, and you go home tonight and you begin to apply them in your home. You just begin to apply them in your work. You begin to apply them with other people. God will bless you. I there's not many things I can guarantee, but one thing I can guarantee is it's you apply the word of God, you'll find a blessing in it. Why? Jesus says, blessed are those who hear it and do it. Blessed are those who hear it and do his word. You apply it with your husband. You apply it with your wife. You apply it with your children. You apply it with your ones that you really can't stand. God will bless that relationship. I'm telling you, it happens. It happens to me. Just you trust God. Now, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. We turn to the good works, things that we ought to be doing. Uh, by the way, I think there's seven things in there. Seven things that a Christian is to do. Not to speak evil, uh, to obey, to be subject, to be uh, showing humility, to be peaceable, to be gentle. Um, but here... Paul's going to talk about seven things that we used to do. 
Seven things that we used to do. So behind the good doctrine, or the, I mean the good works that we are supposed to be doing, here's a doctrine. Why do we need to, or why are we doing those things? It's because there's a solid doctrine behind it. What is the doctrine behind it? So just go to the next slide. We have the next slide open. What is the sound doctrine? That we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice, envy, hateful, and hating one another. There's seven things here that all of us used to do. There's a trace of every single one of those things and who we used to be and hopefully not who we are now. Amen? Hopefully this is not something that we're still hanging on to. Yes, the old creation, the old man continues to rise up from time to time. And those things come out of our lives. But this is something that we are to grow out of. We're something that we're to mature. All of these things were part of our lives. Let's, let's look at each one of them. Uh, by the way, uh, just speaking of John Wesley, about this verse he said, Know your disease and know your cure. Why did he say that? Well, this whole verse is... Uh, 3 to 7 talks about sin and salvation. Sin and salvation. Know your disease. What's our disease? This. We were once foolish. We were once foolish. The word means um, improper, uh, inappropriate thinking. Inappropriate thinking. How does a foolish person, how is that defined in the scripture? Um, well, I can tell you one parable that Jesus taught. It's in the book of Luke. talks about a man who had lots of barns. And then one day, he was very prosperous. He says, you know what? I'm going to tear it all down, and I'm going to build bigger barns, and I can fill all my stuff there, and I'm going to take it easy for the rest of my life. The Lord said, you fool. This night, that very day, your life will be required of you. And he died. And Jesus was teaching a parable about salvation. What was salvation is the fact that we're not to trust in ourselves or in our works or in the things that we have as security. We're to trust in the living God. And you can have security in barns. You can have a lot of stuff. Man. And one day, gone. You, gone. And this man, nothing wrong with having barns, nothing wrong with having things. But he says, I'm going to tear it all down and bring bigger barns to store bigger stuff. His God was his security. His God was his security, and we used to think that way. Hopefully we don't think like that now. We used to think that if we made something bigger, it will secure us. And our security was in the stuff that we had. How foolish we were. But isn't that the world still to this day? The world believes the bigger, the better, the you know, more security. You need this, you need this, you get diversified in this, uh, you know, this I'm not complaining of having stocks or anything like that, but you need to be diversified in this and that. And then you'll be set, brother. Then you'll be set. You need to make sure that everything's set for your retirement. What happened in 2008? The whole thing went, I mean, there's still financial markets are still trying to figure out what happened. It has not recovered. And one that's coming, it's worse, they say, than 2008. So what does that say about our 401Ks that became 201Ks who will be 101Ks or things that people have everything invested in? Our trust should be in the living God. Nothing wrong with security. Nothing wrong with having those things. Nothing wrong with investing. Nothing wrong with that. The Bible says nothing's wrong with it as long as you don't treat it as a fool, in a foolish way. 
that that's your security, that's your God. Psalm, Psalm 14, another thing that says about foolish, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So he wasn't necessarily an atheist. He says in his heart, there is no God. The whole context of Psalm 14 was, the context is that that guy thought he can get away with things and never give account. Okay? He thought that he can do things and treat people however he wanted without ever giving an account to God, that God was going to be okay with him doing those things. And boy, he was going to be surprised. But we were once like that. We once thought that we, who cares if you do this, you sleep around, you do that, you drink this, you smoke that. Ah, God's fine with it. Oh, that was foolish, inappropriate thinking. Foolish in my mind that I was not going to give account. One day I will give an account. And the fool, says this, the fool that says in his heart there's no God will be grievously uh, surprised on that day. Don't be a fool. We once were like that. Number two, disobedient. Every human is bent on disobedience. Amen? Every human being is bent toward disobedient. We see a 65-mile-an-hour sign. We want to go 70. We see a 75-mile-an-hour sign. We want to go 80. Why? We don't like people telling us that we can't do something. If I were to have a stack of books here with a bunch of adults or teenagers, it doesn't matter, fill this place up with all the books that you ever wanted to know and all the subjects you ever wanted to know about life, and I'll put one book just outside that door, and I said, but there's one book you cannot read, touch. It's inappropriate for you to do anything with it. Don't read it. Don't touch it. Don't come close to it but you can have all the other books right here. Do you know what would happen? We would start migrating and asking questions toward that door until somebody figures it out that that book right there, I can read it. And, you know, who's that guy to tell me not to read it? Well, the same thing happened in the garden. Of all the trees, God said, except for one. Why were they even hanging around that tree? I don't know, but there's something in us that are, we're disobedient. We are bent toward disobedience. And that's something that's in our hearts. Even as Christians, we have to fight against it. Number three, we're deceived. Apart from Christ, we all can be deceived. Apart from Christ, we all can be deceived. It doesn't matter how intelligent you are. Um, I have read articles, and I don't have them here, but articles and books of people, PhDs, people that are brilliant professors, that because they reject the Bible, because they reject Christ, they go into these journeys into trying to find themselves and they go into the spiritual journey in tibet and in india and they find the guru or they find the the the, the, the yogi and they sit at the feet of this yogi and, and and they drink their urine and they eat their feces and they go oh i just want some of that some of that brahmin stuff in me i, I just want to have his whatever and, uh, and, and, and these are these are not dumb people these are not people that these are not uneducated these are PhD professors who are totally deceived into thinking that that is true way to spirituality. Because they've rejected Christ, then they're an open game for everything and anything. And that's who we were. We believed in all kinds of stuff. I, I mean, I was having conversations, a young man, about evolution. So he used to believe that. I, why? I never saw a species go from one to the other. I never saw any of those things. I never saw a transitional species. I never saw a, a transitional fossil. I never saw anything. 
But because that guy said it, man, I stood tall and proud against those Christians. I believed in evolution. I believe in, uh, you know, the, 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 the fortuitous conclusion of accidental circumstances. That's what we used to call it. We used to believe all that stuff, but I never saw it. Why did I believe it? Because that guy with the pen that was marking my grades, he believed it, and man, I needed to get a good grade. And so I believed it. Madonna said, Kabbalah is the greatest spiritual liberty you can find. Go get it. So what happened to Kabbalah? Everybody went after it after a while. People are deceived simply because they reject Christ. Absolutely. You know, you see Oprah today, not today, but today in our lifetime, you know, promoting Deepak Chopra. Oh, this guy's got the, the insights to spiritual living. People go buy his book and they're deceived. They're deceived into thinking that's true spirituality. But because she said it, best-selling, you know, she promotes all the best-selling books, everybody believes it. We were once like that. Um, anyway, there's other stuff. Uh, I don't know if you guys heard of a guy named Timothy Leary. Timothy Leary, okay. LSD is the freedom, it's the way to the other side. That's what that <laughs> song, The Doors, break on through to the other, to the other side. Um, it's the break on through to the other side. Man, you got to do it. You gotta, it he was a professor at Harvard. I mean, who can, can, who can argue against him? Smart guy. But he destroyed a whole generation with LSD. They believed him. And we were ones like that. That's the problem. Fourthly, we were slaves. We were slaves serving various lust and pleasure. Now, nothing wrong with pleasure. Nothing wrong with those things. But if those passions have us, it's wrong. If those passions have us, it's wrong. When we're slave to them, possessed by them, um, remember lust is having things on your own terms. It's having and wanting things on your own terms. God wants to give those, this, those things to us, like intimacy. He wants to give us those things. In marriage, yes, he does want to give us those things. But when I want to have that on my own terms, and I lust after it, and I have this desire to have it on my own terms, then it becomes, I become a slave to it. Uh, number five, living in malice. Uh, that has to do with wanting to do harm to people. Not just harm, but always wanting to one-up them. You know what that means? You're like You always want to get ahead of them. Okay? That's how we used to live. We always used to live trying to outdo the other person. No? Is that just me? <laughs> there was always a competition. There was always... I, and we still see it today. Somebody buys this, you got to have that. Somebody has the other thing, you got to have that. And you always are trying to live higher than that other person. More knowledge, more intelligence. Oh, you read that book, you have better grades, all this stuff. You, oh, it's not just trying to do harm. That's one thing. But it's always trying to one-up the other person, challenging them. Romans 1 talks about that quite, quite clear. Envy. Envy is an interesting thing. Uh, we're serving various less pleasures, living in malice, and envy. Um, envy is a horrific thing. It's one of the characteristics of sin. Horrific thing. Is what killed Abel. Amen? Yeah, okay. Is what... Um, what else happened with them? Is what put Joseph in a, in a pit, right? Put Joseph in a pit. Is what led the rebellion against Moses and Aaron, right? There was envy. Uh, what else happened with envy? <laughs> Caiaphas and Annas. 
and the Pharisees were envious of our Lord, and they put him on a cross. Envy is a horrific thing. It's horrible. But you know what? But it's, it's in each and every one of us, and we all live that way. That one person had a better car. That person had a better career. person had a better pay. person had a prettier wife. person had this, that, or the other. There was always living and envious. Just talk to people about that. Just listen to what they're saying. And they're always, oh, he's got iPhone 5. Oh, where's that iPhone 6 coming out? I mean, as simple as that, you, but it's, it's real. It's a, it's a real competition. And people live in that manner. Uh, the last thing is that they're hating, uh, hateful and hating one another. Uh, this in the Greek is very interesting. It's two words, two words together. Uh, and it has to do the idea of loathsome, offensive, uh, meaning that, you hate the person because you see your own character in that person and you hate them for it. Meaning that if somebody's a liar, you hate them for being a liar because you see yourself as a liar. Well, he's lying to me. Well, you know, I'm also a liar too. So I hate them for that. Hateful and hating one another. We're not only hating those that are there, but we also hate what they do because it reminds us of what, who we are. All right. Now, this has to do with who we were in Christ, but hopefully it's not what you're living like right now. If that is something that you're living like right now, I would seriously consider what's going on in our life and our walk with the Lord, because this, is, this should not be in us. It's in us, but not practicing in it. You know what I'm saying? In us, we have the tendency. We can have these tendencies, but it's not something we're to do it. And that's what Timothy, uh, Titus is talking about, because verse 4 breaks it up. It says, but. But means what goes after but, it's going to contradict what just preceded it. Okay? So what's going to be talking about this now, it's going to contradict what he just talked about. All those seven things that were vices, were terrible, how we used to live. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, appeared... Not by the works of righteousness which you have done, but by, according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting, um, from verse 4 to verse 7, in the original, is one sentence. There's no, there's no breaks in between. So if you read verse 4 to 7, in our English it has commas and periods, but in the Greek it's just one long sentence, meaning that this is one thought together that Paul has. Okay, not a breakup in thought, but a, a complete and sound uh, idea. What is the idea? That we used to live like that, but now that the kindness and the love of God our Savior appeared, we're not to live like that. Now, let's go to the next slide. Salvation. Salvation is a beautiful thing. But do we understand what really salvation is? I know we talk about it all the time, but here's a great, if you want to take somebody through this, a young believer, somebody who needs discipleship, this is one, I mean, this is just a beautiful sentence that Paul has for all of us, but especially for new believers, to understand what salvation is. What is salvation? Well, number one is what caused salvation? So I'm just going to take very simple questions. What caused salvation? Something my eight-year-old would ask. What caused salvation? The kindness and the love of God our Savior. That's what caused salvation. Now, this is a beautiful word here for uh, the love of God and the kindness of God. 
It's the word for, we get our word philanthropy from this. Philanthropy. Uh, Philanthropia means lover of man. God is a lover of mankind. That's what it means. God is a lover of men. God loves men. God loves mankind. Uh, There's one amazing attribute of God is that he loves mankind. I don't know why, but he does. We're his creation, yes, but we rebel against him. We're enemies of God. But the kindness and the love of God, philanthropy. When somebody's philanthropic, you know, there's philanthropists, you use that word, meaning that there's, we try to do good to men or we are a lover of mankind. God is a lover of mankind. When his love appeared, when his love appeared, not by the works of righteousness. So who caused our salvation? Did I save myself? Did the church save me? Did my family save me? No, it was the kindness and the love of God. Okay? Uh, and this is a beautiful, important thing to remember. Um, we talk about the love of God and that's an amazing thing. Because if God was only just, I stand no chance of being saved. Do you know that? If God was only just, which he is, but if he was only just, then I have no chance. If God was only holy, then I have no chance. I don't stand a chance ever. I will end up in hell if God was only just and holy. doesn't mean he's evil. It means he's righteous to do that because I sin against him. If he was just and holy, and that was it, none of us here stand a chance. But we thank God that he's not just holy, and he's not just righteous, and he's not just just. He is also kind and loving. Isn't that amazing? Now, a lot of people just want to focus on kindness and love. That's that's true. He is that. And forget the just and the righteous part. But sometimes we forget that he is love and kind as well. And that's the reason why we can be saved, is because he had philanthropy toward me. He loves me. He is a lover of humanity. And so because he's a lover of humanity, he caused my salvation. When the kindness of God appeared, not by the works of righteousness. So there's a condition. Go to the next slide, Serge. There's a condition to this. What is the condition? The condition is, it's not by works of righteousness. The beautiful thing about it, if you read it in the original, this is the first sentence in that, in that passage. Not by works of righteousness which we have done. It's almost to emphasize that you cannot be saved through good works. Now, we've been talking about good works quite a bit in Titus. And just make sure nobody's confused. We're not saved through good works. Uh, Isaiah 64 Verse 6 tells us that very clear. That if we were to present our righteousness before God, it would be foulsome. It would be putrid. It would be like filthy rags. It's the, the, the actual translation. It, it, is, it is menstrual rags, literally, in the Hebrew. It is a, we're trying to bring our works of righteousness. It would be disgusting. If we were to present this to God, as a means to be saved. We're not saved because of works, but because we are saved, we do good works. It's what follows. Remember the good doctrine? It follows the doctrine. So we're to be uh, involved in this, but not to get saved. And so the order is very important here. Not to get saved, but because we are saved. Some people try to do good works to be saved. Lots of religions, lots of things. 
I was taught that in Roman Catholicism. I was taught that continually, that you were saved through sacramental salvation by performance and doing good deeds. Sign me up. The problem was nobody ever told me how many I had to do, which was a problem. I didn't know when to stop. And the second one, who called it good works? Who was the barometer of it? Who, who judged it? If I did it, well, the priest is going to say, oh, that's not good. Nobody ever qualified it. How many? And what do you mean good works? What's good to me could be anything. And so nobody will ever be saved by good works. Now, there's also another thing that people try to do good works um, to prove that they are saved. They're just trying to do good works to prove it. I am saved. I am saved. Look what I'm doing. And that's also not good. We do good, we do good works because we are saved. Because God has not only touched our lives, but he's changed us. Now, let's continue with this. Question number three. What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be saved? Well, look what it says here in verse five. Um, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Now remember, this is good doctrine. We talked about the good deeds. Now we're talking about doctrine. This is important. How? I'm sorry, who caused it? What is the condition? But what does it mean to be saved? Uh, there's a famous Irish evangelist called William Mullen, who was a, um, let's just say before he got saved, he wasn't a good guy. He was a criminal. <laughs> Turn evangelist. William Mullen said, it is not enough for God to give us a, a new start in life. Because if that was it, he would just go back to do the things that he used to do. I got a new start in life. Well, he would, he would say, I'm going to become a drunk. I'm going to go steal. I'm going to be a criminal. He would just go back to those things. But he says, but God not, doesn't give us a new start in life, but he gives us a new life to start with. Does that make sense? He doesn't give us a, 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 start, a new start in life. And it's not a new start. He gives us a new life to start with. It's actually a new life. You and I have a new life in us. And this is what he's talking about. It is the washing of regeneration. Um, it is a very, I love this. Some, excuse me for going into technical things, but it's, it's just a beautiful thing. There's only one word in the New Testament that it's the same one. Regeneration, it's, it's uh, Matthew 19, 28, where Jesus talks about when the regeneration comes and talks about his millennial kingdom, when the world will be regenerated into the kingdom of the Messiah. This is the regeneration of us now, though. It is the washing and regeneration. What is the washing of regeneration? The word washing, you have that in one other passage. It's in Ephesians 5 the husband and wife passage, where it says that he will sanctify her through the washing of the water by the word. Now, Paul's speaking of Christ in the church, but he's applying it to marriage. Talking about marriage there. I, I didn't mean to point, but they're getting married. So uh, that was sort of a, uh, sort of a lead there. Um, washing of the water by the word. Now, when did God wash us? Now, some people would attribute this to baptism. And they say, aha, there's baptismal regeneration. It's the washing and you're regenerated. That's not what he's talking about. Although I can make a case that baptism is 
confirms the fact that you've been saved and now you're making a proclamation of faith, I could understand it from that perspective, but it's not saying that regeneration happens because you've been baptized. Regeneration is the washing of God's word. God's word comes into us and it washes us, but it also regenerates us into a new life, a new birth. That Literally what it means is we're born again. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And if somebody want to read that, so I can take a drink of water. Let's see if I say just take a drink. Somebody might say, what is he doing? Take a drink of water. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. I'm sorry, verse 22 and 23. 1 Peter chapter 1, 22 and 23. Somebody not ashamed, stand up and let it shout. The beautiful passage. 1 Peter chapter 1, 22 and 23. Those who don't read, come on. I almost know who's going to read. Because you always read. How about somebody who's never read before? Don't be ashamed. Oh, boy. Am I have to read it? Okay, brother. Go ahead, brother. Amen. We've been born again. The washing. Oh, I have a, I have a water. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Well, this will work. I have a, it might work with my uh, analogy here. Uh, go back to Titus. Uh, let's, let's finish this off. We're just about done. The old life is gone. The new life begins. Christ in you, the hope of glory it's the new life, the new, the regeneration. It happens by the washing and regeneration. Let's continue reading. And renewing of the Holy Spirit. Washing, regeneration, and renewing. The word renewing, it's a beautiful word. It literally means to make things new. How about that? That's the depth of my theological understanding, right? It literally means spring cleaning. That's what the, the, how it, it was used in the Greek language. It's to clean. It's to clean. It's an upnewing, uh, a process of cleaning, making it look clean, making it look bright. That is what the Holy Spirit does in our lives when we're saved. He saves us. He washes us. He regenerates us. He renews us. That's what born again means. He washes us. He regenerates us, makes us born again, and he renews us. He makes us new again. He cleans us. And the beautiful thing about it, this is one process. It's not talking about two different things that happen. It is one event that happens. It is the washing, regeneration, and it's the renewal. It's the renewal. We're born again. We're brand new. It is as if the Lord has made us completely new. We have a, not a new start in life, but a new life to begin with. It's a new life. It completely goes back to zero. He makes us new. Now, there's one beautiful thing about this. is like number four, who is the carrier? Who makes this all happen? Is the Holy Spirit who is 
who he poured out on us abundantly through the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Uh, the word to pour out, it's the same word that is used in Pentecost. Now, I want to explain what this means really quick. In the book of, Pentec- in the book of Acts, in Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, Peter quotes a prophecy in Joel that God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. When Peter stands up and he says, hey, this is what's happening. God is pouring out his spirit. That's the same word here. He is pouring it out. The word means to lavishly pour it out. Not a trickle, not a sprinkling, but a continual flow. He pours it out on us. The Holy Spirit pours out on us so that we will be saved, so that he is abundantly in our lives. It's, it's, you have to get this. I mean, it's, it's, I'm doing a terrible job of explaining it. But the spirit in my life, right, I'm born again. I have the spirit of God. But he, he's poured out upon me. He's poured out upon me lavishly so that what? So I could be continually renewed. So I continually can walk in it. So I continually could live in the spirit, can walk in the spirit. Now, this is something that we have to cooperate with, with the Lord. It's something that Peter talks about, being sanctified, being purified. Whom he poured out on us abundantly, that having been justified by his grace. So the Holy Spirit is the one that it's causing. I call it the carrier because he's the one that carries those things into our lives. Think about it for a moment. That Jesus promised us peace. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. I could prove it. He says, my peace... No, nobody got it? Okay. I give you peace. You got it? Okay. Not as the world gives you peace, but I give you peace. My peace will be in you, right? How does that happen? How do you have peace? That's right. Got it. At least it worked today. See, I'm going to go home today. I go, I didn't explain it right. Nobody got it. Uh, it's the Holy Spirit who makes it happen. That Jesus promises Liberty. It's the word freedom, yeah. Okay. yeah. Yeah. Yes, he did! Where did he say that? Oh, boy. He who the Son sets free? See, I told you he did it. How does that happen? How do you live in freedom? The Holy Spirit in your heart carries the promises of Christ and lives it out in you so you can live in the liberty of the Spirit. Did Jesus Christ promise his love? Yes, he did. Do we have the love of the Spirit? Romans tells us we do. It has been shed in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So all the promises of Christ that he promised, every single one of them, none of them are false, they're all true, are lived out in our lives, are carried in our hearts and in our lives through the Holy Spirit. See how that works? He promised us to save us. He regenerates us. The Holy Spirit regenerates us. He saves us. Why? Because Jesus promised it. It was in the Father's plan. He loved us, sent his Son. The Son died for us. He resurrected for us. Now the Holy Spirit lives in us, regenerates us, renews us, and is constantly with us, changing us, sanctifying us, carrying out the promises of Christ in our lives. And it's not just a little bit here and there. It says he poured it out. 
he poured it out. Now, why can't I live like that? I don't have that question up there, but that was one of the questions that I had, is why? Now, the consequence is very easy. The, con- the consequences is this. Being, having been justified, acquitted, case dismissed, Jesus justifies the sinner, not the actions, not my sin. Okay, remember that. It's very important. He doesn't justify my sins. My sins are unjustifiable. What I've done to God and to other people are unjustifiable. But in his mercy, he died for them. He paid the price for my sins and justifies the sinner. I stand before God, acquitted, case dismissed, justified. That's what it means. The sinner walks away free. I come out of the courtroom and I go, God, remember my sin? It's as if it never happened. That's an amazing thing if you think about it. My sin in God's mind never happened. That's called justification, my friend. You bring it to God and it says, what sin are you talking about? When did you do that? God, come on, you're playing with me, right? You have amnesia? (laughs) No, God just wipes it out through the Son's blood. Through the Christ's blood, he justifies the sinner, forgives the sin, acquits the sinner because of his grace. The charge is thrown out. There's no more to talk about. And we say, well, that's good enough for me. Oh, there's more. Remember, grace to the heirs of grace. That we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's getting late, so we got to finish. In the Roman law, a condemned criminal had no inheritance. Nothing. You were done. Zero. You basically would live as a pauper in jail, criminal for the rest of your life. But if somebody was acquitted, for some reason was acquitted, then they will move into a status where they become an heir. Paul takes that idea and he says, this is what God does for us. He not only regenerates us, saves us, justifies us, which is amazing already. Here on the earth, we can live like that, but we have something greater. We have the hope of eternal life, which we are heirs, co-heirs with Christ. I'm going to look up some of these scriptures. I'm going to have you look it up, but we're, we're just about finished. Galatians 3, we're heirs with Christ because we're children of Abraham. The book of Galatians talks about that. The book of Ephesians talks about being co-heirs with Christ. We are co-heirs with Christ. Now the question to you, Christian, and think about it for a moment. What does Christ, what is he going to inherit? What is he going to inherit? Everything. And the Christian inherits everything. Not in this life. Because who wants to have this world we're going to inherit the ages to come we're going to have the world to come we are the heirs of the power of the new age not the new age of this world not the new age philosophy but there's a new age coming did you know that there is a new age that's coming when the book of ephesians talks about in the ages to come the lord will show you lavishly his grace And you will be heirs and co-heirs with Christ 
of eternal life and all that is in it will be yours and mine. That's something to look forward to. In this life, renewed, regenerated, justified. Praise the Lord. If that was it, I'm a happy man. But there's more. And God says, you become heirs. And you will have everything that my son is going to inherit. Why, God? What did I do? Nothing. I'm just going to lavish you because he's a philanthropist. He loves mankind. And because we believe in his son and because we are become part of his family and we're born again, he makes us heirs with Christ of eternal life according to the gospel of hope of eternal life. That, my friends, is good news. I don't care if you take all the billions and millions of dollars or euros or anything that is this world ever produced. Don't sign me up for that. Keep that. I would rather be an heir with Christ and be a pauper in this world than to have everything this world has to offer and lose out on eternal life. Amen? Amen. That's what God has for us. Grace to the heirs of grace. We are going to inherit everything. If you're poor today because you have $3, don't worry about it. You're going to inherit everything. If you have $300 million, use it for the Lord. Because you're going to inherit something bigger and greater. Just be accountable to it. It's like having a lottery ticket. I don't play the lottery, but I told Lynette. I don't play the lottery. It's like having a lottery ticket. You're just waiting it for it to be cashed. And you're going to be a multi, 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 multi-billionaire for the rest of eternity. But you just can't cash it yet. But you have it. <laughs> so you know it's coming, but you just can't have it yet. But we'll soon have it. Because when Christ comes, we will have the promise of eternal life. And it's not just about what we're going to have. It's to be with him, which is the greatest treasure. God has given us something greater than anything ever created. It's himself. And tonight, if you're born again, you have the Holy Spirit renewing you. If you're not saved, he will regenerate you. But he will renew you, and he will be poured out on your life. Oh, I want that so bad in my life because sometimes I feel there's trickles. But God wants to give lavishly. So let's pray tonight for the Holy Spirit to be poured out in our lives and make it real and help. And, and Lord, be, and, and we're going to pray that he is the carrier of the promises of Jesus. Lord, we're so thankful that you've given us so much in this world and so much in this life that we don't deserve it, Lord, and the doctrine, the doctrine and the truth of it, Lord, is because you loved us and you saved us and you renewed us and regenerated us. But, Lord, we are to do good works. We're to go out of this place and be zealous for good work. Be passionate about living our faith in front of other people, Lord. Be passionate about sharing Christ with those who we come in contact with. Lord, because we're going to inherit everything. We're going to have all that you have in, in stored and promised. And Lord, and I love my family and I love my friends and I want them to be a part of that too. Lord, it's not my gospel. It's your gospel. And it's not for me to hold it to myself as if it was mine, but it's for us to give it away 
is for us to invite and, 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 and lavishly invite to those who want it the promise of eternal life. Oh, Lord, what a blessing it is to hear how you save us. Lord, this is, this is, we can teach this to someone. Lord, please help us to teach this to someone. Maybe someone didn't come today and we can explain it and we can share it and we can partake of it with someone else. Lord, that you have renewed us, you have regenerated us, Lord. You have poured out on us and you have given us a hope to be heirs with Christ in eternity. Lord, we don't even understand what that means. Lord, we might have read it today and acknowledged it, but Lord, help it to sink into our hearts. Lord, may the Holy Spirit make that real to us today, what it means to be regenerated, to be renewed, and to be heirs of salvation. Lord, oh, thank you, Lord, for the promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.